Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. I know we, pro I can project and we probably don't need the microphone, but we are trying to record this for our district uh, project website, and we're afraid that the camera's not going to pick up the audio. So we're going to ask if you do talk, if you don't mind using the microphone for that purpose, uh, and hopefully it will also help you hear us as we introduce ourselves. I am Leisha Cabral. I'm the superintendent of schools. Jane Martin is a is member of the school committee who will speak in a moment. She's also the chair of our school building committee, which is leading us through uh, a, a portion of this process. It can be very complicated with all of the acronyms you're going to be hearing from MSBA, which is the granting source of the state, ELT, which is the educational leadership team, which is putting together the educational plan that's uh, important for this process. SBC, which is the school, uh, SPC, which is the school planning committee uh, that is sort of weaving in and out of all of the uh, duties, and the ultimately the municipal building committee will be involved if the project uh, is funded and becomes an actual building project. So this evening, we just wanted to introduce you to our guests who have a lot of information to share with you, so we can turn it over rather quickly. We have our representatives from the design firm, which is Perkins Eastman. We have Bob, who's going to be doing a good portion of the speaking tonight, and Ashley. And also from our uh, owner's project manager, which is PMA Consultants. We have Walter joining us. And then finally, um, in terms of that educational visioning we've been talking about, that we've had with faculty members and community members and parents and um, administration, all of that is, is being put together and presented this evening by David from New Vista Design. So as you can see, the MSBA, again, which is the granting authority, so a very important presence in this whole project, has a very scripted format that we are following. And all of these components are required. They're required for a very good reason. And they're helping us follow a particular uh, timeline. We did not lose power. <laughs> that is, we, we just asked for them to be dimmed a little bit so that perhaps the camera could pick up the slideshow and, of course, set the ambiance for the evening. So I'm going to let Jane Martin talk a little bit, and then she'll toss it back to me if there's uh, anything else she'd like me to cover, and then we'll turn it over to our guests. So I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being here this evening. Uh, please understand that we are very, very much encouraging your participation on this project because we realize that this building ultimately if it is to be built has to serve a lot of needs and a lot of people and we can't really make the most out of that project and make sure it is serving all of those needs and people unless we have everybody's perspective and everybody's lens involved in coming up with the design and plan so we really appreciate you being here and encourage you to uh, share your thoughts and questions please thank you um, so I'm going to take just a very couple brief minutes in rewind a little bit and talk about the history of the, the project. So for folks who've been in town for some time, I think of this project as the third phase um, of our, our towns looking at our school facilities. Um, 20 years ago, Richardson Olmsted was opened. Um, then 10 years ago, approximately, the renovation and expansion of the middle school and high school occurred. Both of those projects occurred um, under the school building authority, which was 
kind of the previous generation of the Massachusetts School Building Authority. So both of those projects happened under that group's authority. Um, but, but we recognized when those projects were done that as a community, we really needed to shift our focus to our primary schools. We have three primary schools in town, and those buildings, both from an infrastructure perspective and from um, an educational perspective in terms of what they have available for programming in those buildings, what those buildings can accommodate, those two elements really require um, a lot of focus and attention. So every year since, I think, 2011, we have submitted those three primary schools on separate submittals to the MSBA for their consideration. In February of 2017, so it kind of gives you a sense of it can take some time before the MSBA is going to, going to look at your district's um, um, request. Um, but in 2017, the MSBA let us know that they were inviting the center school only into kind of the pipeline for eligibility. But that first phase of the regimented process that Dr. Cabral talked about is eligibility. So um, during the first thing we did was put together a school planning committee. That's one of the very first requirements, which is made up of members from, of the community. It's made up of um, representatives from the administration. It's made up of representatives from the town, board of selectmen, um, DPW. So it's really got a good cross-section of, of folks who can help guide this process from start to finish. Um, and what happened during eligibility is really, for me, one of the first things that happened is a great opportunity for our town. Because the MSBA said to us, we are going to let you look at another option. And so one of the first things, in addition to just looking at the center school, so one of the first things that the school planning committee did was submit to the MSBA two sites as possibilities and two enrollment options. And so the two sites are we do something on the current center school site or something on the current Parkview site. And then the two enrollment options would be we do something to accommodate the enrollment of what is center school, um, so the center school student population, or we do something that could allow us to consolidate all of the town's pre-K through grade two enrollment students into one um, building. So from my perspective, that the opportunity to look at that as an option is, is I feel like we're in a really, it's fortunate for us to be able to do that. Now, I don't know that that's where we'll end up, um, but I think the fact that the MSBA opened that door for us um, is a really good sign. So one of the then so the process continued. I'm trying to hit the highlights in terms of from the town's perspective. In the fall of 2017, at special town meeting, um, the town approved an appropriation of a million dollars for the school planning committee to then work through what's considered the feasibility and schematic design phases of this project, which is why we have all of these highly qualified experts to help guide us through that. Um, that million dollars, just so folks know, it was money that was available as mitigation payment from the Avalon project. 
So it didn't require us to um, bond anything out special. That money was available and the town had agreed that um, they were going to set that money aside for this particular project. So that's where we were in the fall. Um, in December of December, January of 2018, the MSBA said to us, you can move forward. You can move officially into feasibility and schematic, which is kind of then when we started the process to hire our experts. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Cabral talk a little bit about one of the some of the most important things that we did during those first school planning committee meetings when we talked about the feel and what was important to us as a committee in a town. So I believe that a lot of what we discussed at those first meetings was then replicated at the visioning meetings and I know that we're going to be covering that. Um, I just wanted to highlight that um, the committees, one of their first um, charges was to really think about that large school and if that was even something we wanted to take the MSBA up on to pursue. And after meeting with these experts, and I think you'll notice, just keep an eye out for that in what is covered by David in the visioning process, I think you'll see several places where that was highlighted as a priority. The small school approachable feel for all learners. And um, keep a special eye on that because I think, um, as I said, you'll see it running through a lot of what you see this evening, is that that has definitely been captured in all of the conversations so far. And uh, I, that, that is a very important consideration for us and uh, it certainly wasn't lost on us that that would be a huge school for little ones. Um, I think you'll see that that has been handled very well so far. And now I will introduce Bob from Perkins Eastman. Thank you, Alicia and Jane. Um, so what we're going to cover tonight is uh, I'm going to do a recap of, of the process schedule and existing conditions. Just briefly, it's going to be at a high level, but I don't know how many of you have maybe been following along, maybe have been here before. I see some new faces. Um, we can certainly come back to, to anything that I present uh, if there are questions. Um, but the, the majority of what we want to do here is share with you what's come out of the visioning process, engage you all a bit in, in that as well, um, and then show you we're at a milestone now where we've just started to develop, we've done site analysis, and just started to develop what we call test fit plans. So they're not full-blown designs, we're not going to go in and see how the building works, although we've, we've worked on that. It's really just to take a first look at each site, all the different configurations that were described, uh, and see if it, it seems to work well or comfortable on the sites. Uh, and then we'll end with the next steps. So, big picture. Um, if we're successful in seeing a project through, whether it's an ad renovation, whether it's small, whether it's the large school, whether it's all new, um, it's probably about four to five years before a building would be completed. Um, so it's probably two and a half years or maybe um, half of that basically in construction. Um, and we spend two to two and a half years, this actually only represents one year, two to two and a half years just uh, drawing it, designing it, drawing it, um, putting it out to bid. Uh, it takes quite a while. Of the two, roughly two years that we're working on drawings, this is the first year. This is actually what we're under contract for. This is the MSBA's process. Uh, it's broken down into a feasibility study, which is, again, testing um, the ability to, to do a project. 
and then schematic design, which is taking that solution and, and drawing it in detail. Um, you can see that we're right about here. We started really the beginning of September. We uh, started immediately, I think, the night after the, our interviews. Um, but late August, and um, we're in a process right now that's called the Preliminary Design Program, another wonderful acronym called PDP. Um, but a tremendous amount happens in this first phase. We start from zero, we come out, we look at all the existing conditions, the sites, the buildings, the facilities. We have a host of engineers that take a look at um, the existing conditions. We also do that with the educational program. We look at what's being taught in the schools, how it's being taught, what's working. We go through a process of visioning to determine what the goals are for Easton, for the future. Um, and an educational program is produced, and that's really a written narrative it's bolded here because that's a pivotal document. That's what the state sees as what this district needs to, to accomplish. And as the architect, we need to make sure that we design a building that meets those needs. Um, so s some of what comes out of that is uh, space needs. It's actually a list of all the spaces and how big they are. Um, the plan options, which I just discussed, we start with test fits. Uh, and of course, we're doing costs. And all the way through, we'll be meeting with community and faculty um, deliberately before any decisions are made, so we're trying to get input and share um, as decisions are being made, but before they're being made. Um, we end this process in mid-January, and what it means is we've looked at everything, we've figured out what the goals are, we have a number of options, but we haven't made a decision about what's best for Easton yet. That'll happen in this phase here, so from January to early May, that's where those plan options will get refined, scrutinized at a high level, Ultimately, the district, the, the town, will need to select what is the preferred solution. Is it a combined school? Is it a single school? Is it just a renovation? Is it brand new construction? So that's to come. Um, and it'll, at that point uh, in May, um, proceeding forward, what we do is we take that one solution and we develop it in a great amount of detail so that a budget can be put to it. So we'll be, even though the designs aren't at a great, um, exhaustive level of drawings, we'll still be trying to figure out what are the materials, what it's made out of, what are the furniture arrangements for the school, what does the whole thing look like, how does it work. Um, so everything really needs to be uh, figured out so that a budget can be put to it and it can be taken to town meeting. So that's just sort of an overview. It's a lot happening in the first year, but particularly in this the first four months here, four and a half months. Um, Jane already talked about the configuration, so we're talking about center elementary school only at 235 plus pre-K. Um, and that could be an ad reno at the center school, or it could be new construction at the center school site. Uh, we're also looking at the district-wide pre-K to 2 for 760 plus pre-K. Um, and that might be um, an ad reno at the center school, believe it or not. It might be building new construction at the center school, or it might be at the Parkview site um, as an ad reno or new. So this is kind of the range that we're looking at. Um, not, not really considered an option, but one of the other things we do is we look at base repair. So it's natural as a community member to wonder, well, that's great, these, all these things cost a lot of money. What, what if we just fixed the buildings? What if we you know, took each of the three buildings and fixed them? That's what base repair is. It doesn't actually achieve any of the, the educational goals specifically. Uh, it just fixes the building, and I'll go into some detail on what, what that is and what the range of costs are. Um, but it brings them up to code compliance. Um, we also thought it was important that we look at if, if the, the choice was to do just the center elementary school at 235 students, 
is it, again, a natural question to say, well, what would Parkview cost? What would, um, uh, sorry, uh, more, more no? Morale. Extra letter. Um, so if Moreau was done in the future, you know, what would those cost? Um, how far on the future might they occur? Uh, this wasn't specifically in our scope of work, but we really feel like you can't complete the picture, we can't complete our conversations with the community unless, unless everybody sees that. Um, so, what have we been doing? Existing conditions. Um, I'm actually not the specialist um, technically with existing conditions buildings, but we have a team. We have a team of engineers as well as architects within Perkins Eastman that have gone out to look at all the buildings and assess them. Um, everybody has been out there. Traffic actually just started last week, which we know is a, a critical component to any solution here in town. Um, but everybody has been out there to take a look. So um, understanding what it might take to fix, repair, um, any of the existing schools. Um, if we start with the center elementary school, um, basically have a building built in the 50s and added on to in the 60s. The assessed value is about $3 million. And the reason that's important is that if you were to do any repairs on this school, as soon as you hit 30% of that assessed value, so basically $1 million, you trigger things like full handicap compliance. Um, if, you, if you work on the building renovating and you're you're covering more than 50% of its area, then you trigger structural and seismic code upgrades. So um, although you might like to think you can go into the building and, and just fix a few things year after year, uh, very often a single scope of work like mechanical systems, replacing the mechanical systems will trip you into all these other uh, code requirements and it, it quickly becomes a, a much larger project. Um, so we've done our own estimate on what that would cost and it's um, there's a language to costs that I think are important. Um, numbers, uh, we don't like, excuse me, we don't like to get uh, numbers out too early um, because uh, they're really relative, they're not actual. Um, there's something called construction cost, and that's the cost of just the building. Um, if we were to put it out to bid and the contractor agreed to do the work, that would be the cost. But that's not the total project. Um, sorry, total project cost is, um, is a, a bigger number, and that includes things like the fees for professional services and insurances and testing and, and furniture and equipment, many other things that go into a building but aren't part of what the contractor um, provides. So uh, construction costs, but then total project costs is what we're really talking about. So the estimate to uh, go through all the code upgrades and repairs only um, for the center school is at about $19 million. Um, and again, that, that's hitting the, the triggers in the threshold. Um, fortunately, there was a study done in 2014 by a different firm, Doran Whittier, um, and they had numbers as well, but they had looked at the buildings back then. Um, of course, that was in 2014, but we know what construction costs have escalated since that time. So we took their numbers and escalated it up, and the numbers, again, construction costs here, come pretty close. And we took a closer look to figure out what's different we have carried things like, um, excuse me, modulars, or sometimes they're called portable classrooms. Those are important because if you were to repair these buildings, you certainly need to make sure you vacate portions of the building. So we were pretty confident with what Dorn Whittier came up with compared to what we have, that the numbers are looking about right. Um, the center school itself is a mix of construction types. I won't go into great detail here. Um, but most of the walls, virtually all of the walls, are not laterally braced or reinforced. 
So that means uh, once you start to move things around, uh, it gets very complicated. Um, uh, it's not an easy renovation, in other words. Um, but it's got a lot of the typical, um, uh, basically, uh, non-compliance uh, features within the school that would have to be remedied. Um, I think uh, this show also shows, sorry, bearing walls versus non-bearing walls, so that's important to us if we were to um, have to move things around in the school to see you know, what it might cost to, to move those walls. If we were to look at the Parkview School, it's very similar. In rough terms, it's again assessed, uh, in this case, just over three million. Uh, so we're talking about the same thresholds, about a million dollars triggers compliance. Um, the estimated construction cost was uh, just under 14 million here, and it, the project cost is uh, just under 18. And again, that gets pretty close with what we saw in the Doran Whittier estimate. Um, this building, however, is a little more forgiving. It's got bearing walls that are reliable. Um, it means walls in between the, uh, those red lines can be moved around. So if it needed adjustments, it'd be a little bit friendlier as far as a renovation. Um, and then finally, Moreau Hall. Um, here, this again was not part of our scope, so we didn't have the services of sending all of our engineers in, but based on the last two we looked at, with the Dorn Whittier report being relatively accurate, we took their numbers and escalated them up, um, and we got a construction cost of just under 12 and a total project cost of uh, just under 17 million. Um, again, similar vintage, 1960s building, um, but it would have this very similar, actually slightly lower thresholds as far as compliance. Um, so the last thing on the existing conditions that we looked at were scenarios. So now we know each one of the buildings, you know, maybe it's uh, roughly around 19 or, or so million to fix them. How, how would that be done over time? So scenario A would suggest uh, maybe you hire a design team right away, you, you figure out what you need to do with all the buildings, and then, you, and then you put it out to bid and you have a contractor do the projects. Now, even if a contractor to work on each one of the schools, because you don't have swing space, you'd have to do them successively, so it looks like about a four-year process. Um, the total project cost to do them all kind of efficiently, if you will, is looking like 54 million. Um, scenario B, uh, which suggests that you uh, fund the projects all at one time, but maybe they are done as individual projects. Um, again, you can see it's a similar timeline about the same cost, but it's, it totals around $56 million. Uh, the last scenario would suggest that you do the projects just one at a time. Just uh, hire to solve the problems, and then hire a contractor, and then when that's done, uh, do the same thing for each of the other schools. So again, it's very similar timeline, a little bit more expensive at about $60 million. Um, this is really just background information. Again, it's not meeting any educational objectives. But this will come up again and again. We'll show it as we do develop real design plans and options and put costs to them. We want to compare it to what it costs to repair and fix the existing buildings. Uh, last thing that we did look at with each one of your schools is the energy use and consumption. Um, we know that modern buildings are required, um, but also achieve much greater energy efficiency than anything that exists. Uh, a typical school in the United States is hovering around, um, I guess, around 60, it's like 58 EUI. EUI is a measure, measure of energy use, so it combines both electricity and fuel and extrapolates it into kilo BTUs uh, per square foot per year. It's a little abstract, but basically it's a measuring. 
Um, so an, an average um, high-performing or, or modern school is, uh, or existing school is around um, that 58 number. Your schools are up here. Um, I think this starts with the center school, which is around 130, the Parkview school, which is around 80, and then Moreau, which is um, somewhere around 70. Um, a new project would target an EUI um, basically around 35 or better. Um, so 35, that's a modern, high-performing, really traditional school building that you see now that's um, energy efficient. Uh, what that basically means in the scheme of things is that um, you could see, uh, this is just an example of a, a combined school, you'd see uh, savings in the magnitude of eighty to $90,000 per year um, in energy use. Usually electricity is the same or higher because um, there aren't a lot of plugs in existing schools and maybe there's not a lot of uh, modern equipment plugged in, but uh, energy we usually see, uh, electricity we see go up, but gas we usually see come down quite a bit. So. These are all done very early energy modeling, but something that we'll do throughout the process too, so we can see what any of the, the new options look like. Um, we pay attention to things like solar orientation or shape of the building to try to make sure it's efficient and effective. So that's all the boring stuff. Um, I know there may be questions, and this has been presented before, but we're hoping to get right into the visioning and uh, engage you. So with that, I'll turn it over to David. So now we're going to talk about visioning. Bob was talking much more nuts and bolts. This is more kind of higher order thinking about um, aspirations for the project. Um, the way that the visioning process works, it's, it's very sequential. Uh, we have three different workshops, and um, you don't need to look at it now, but they are outlined in the handout that you have here. The first one focuses on um, academic goals and practices and best practices and really sort of um, looking at what the district sees as its priorities as its cutting edge and how it how the district really sees this as an opportunity to position itself over the coming decades to have schools that are going to really serve your kids and your community um, so we we look at that and at the same time as looking at the the district's practices we look at what trends are happening um, around the country and what people are thinking of as future-ready learning. Or, and, and the reason why the MSBA, the Mass School Building Authority, is so interested in this is because they don't want to be funding schools that are going to be obsolete within five or ten years of being built. So they're really looking to, um, to buildings that are highly flexible and adaptable so that over time, as teaching practices change and as technology changes, these buildings will be able to adapt to those changes. So we share a lot of examples of what that can look like. Um, and then the second workshop uh, is, with, um, is, is focusing on design patterns and guiding principles. And I'm going to be going over some of those with you tonight about what the group has, um, have, have prior, has prioritized. And the guiding principles are sort of big picture priorities. Uh, they are philosophical, they're academic, they could have to do with actual building features, but the design patterns then are the building features that really sort of make those guiding pr principles come alive. So that's what we worked on in the second. And in the third workshop, we worked on key spaces and adjacencies. Now the MSBA has a template, a very thoughtful template, about how much square footage 
um, it will allot for you, given your two different enrollment scenarios, about just how large the building should be, how many classrooms, how many special, special ed rooms, uh, how large your cafeteria is. Um, but within that template, we can really be creative about how we use the space. And that is actually something that ties everything together because all of these pieces of the visioning also factor into an educational plan that the district writes and makes as a sort of submits to the MSBA along with the architectural program saying this is who we are, this is what we do and want to do, this is how we see this building as an opportunity to carry our vision forward and these are the kind of spaces and adjacencies we, we would like. So all of this comes together as one piece. Now, I should say there are three different groups that we're, we're working with the community. This is one of our community forums now. This is the second community forum we've held. Um, the group that I'm talking about in terms of the workshops uh, was called the Design Working Group, and it was a group of 35, approximately 35 people from your community that consisted of teachers and administrators as well as parents and community partners. And so um, those people came to all three, pretty much, of the, of the workshops. We really encouraged people to come to all three because it, it is very sequential. So, um, and, uh, and then also we've been, of course, meeting with the educational leadership team to really get the lay of the land from the district about what it's, what it's most sort of excited about in terms of this opportunity. So that's, um, those are the pieces of the visioning process and I'll share some of, the, some of the highlights. And you have this on your, on your handout. What I'll do is go over some of the highlights and then um, give us all an opportunity to talk about them a little bit and in terms of um, any ideas you have about um, what you're noticing, what you think might be missing, and what questions you have about them. So first we'll talk about priorities and guiding principles. Um, and then we'll get into the, the design patterns, which are the sort of building features. So in terms of, um, of priorities, um, warmth and welcome was something that came up a lot. Uh, security is a part of this, so we know that schools need to be very secure, and we want to have double lock mechanisms to get in, and lots of good visibility. Um, and at the same time, we want to be sure that the school feels warm and welcoming and creates a feeling of, especially for, for really young kids, we want it to feel child-scaled and, and like a warm and, and safe place to be. So safety and security, warmth and welcome, they're all kind of connected. Universal access, we need to make sure that not only are we handicapped accessible, but we're making the building as accessible to all types of students and learners. Um, and that gets into inclusive practices, which is differentiating instruction within the classroom to meet the needs of different kind of learners. And that's something that's really changed about the way we deliver educational programs these days is that there are oftentimes are aids in a classroom, so there's a co-teaching model. So we might have a number of different things going on at one time within a classroom. Sustainability was another priority that people felt very strongly about, not only sustainable building um, materials and practices, but also seeing the building itself as kind of a teaching tool. And we looked at a number of, exam of examples of schools where that was in fact a case where kids could actually monitor how energy was being used within the building um, and interact with it. Community access was another big piece. 
So we want this to be a place that unites the community, that's a hub of community, that can be used um, after hours and on weekends by the community. So we look at more private and public zones of the school. Um, and throughout the day, I mean, something that was also brought up a number of times was the idea of, of engaging seniors and senior citizens within the community and perhaps having not only a parent center, but a place for seniors within the community where that could be part of the school culture. Practical and efficient design, that came up a lot. We want this to be really an economical and practical solution um, to, the, to the needs of the, of the community and students. Thermal comfort, very important, and that's something that unfortunately a lot of, a lot of teachers live without and students live without. School rooms can be either too cold or too warm. It's hard to get the right kind of air exchange or fresh air or natural light, so we want to focus on those things. 21st century teaching and learning was a theme that kept coming up. Um, now, and as I said, we're looking at more differentiated instruction and, ten and also lots of kind of varied um, delivery of materials, so more hands-on work. That, in that means that we might want a, a sink in every classroom or storage for materials or furniture that's really flexible so that you can have a more traditional setup and then you can also set up into smaller groupings. Social-emotional learning is a big piece of what educators are concerned about these days. Meeting the needs of kids, helping them to learn how to be part of a community, to feel safe emotionally, to communicate their ideas, to, to process their feelings. And that means we want to have varied spaces within the school. And some, of, some spaces might be more quiet, spaces for de-escalation. Outdoor connections and space, we know we want to create lots of natural light in the school as well as opportunities for age-appropriate outdoor play and really, really utilizing the building site, uh, clear and transparent communication with the community. So that also is a, is a priority that we talked about quite a bit, um, making sure that we, we really very clearly communicate the thought process that has gone on here and why we're setting the priorities that we're setting. Now, at the beginning, we also did an activity around learning goals, around um, 21st century learning goals. And the, the reason why this is important is because that's the reason why we're doing this all, right? We want to support certain kinds of teaching and learning. And, um, and so we brought the group through an activity around what those, what those priorities were. And this is what resulted from that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. This is, this is something that really aligns with what we call the four C's of future ready or 21st century learning. So communication, creativity, collaboration, and um, critical thinking. And that's something that's baked into the Common Core State Standards. A lot of educators are talking about it. These are the big buckets that we want to make sure that we're covering. And so the, the kind of goals that we came up with all sort of centered around that, the communication and collaboration piece, creativity. Social-emotional intelligence was a big part of it as well, the conversation, and that really has to do with kids um, having opportunities for collaborative work, learning how to develop empathy and caring, and, um, and what it means to be a citizen within the school. Passion and engagement, making sure that kids, every kid finds a way to connect and be successful within their classrooms, within the school. 
Um, and agility and adaptability, the ability to kind of work in different um, contexts and different kinds of groupings and to be able to try things and to, um, and to fail at them but then persist. And all of these things actually have uh, physical implications when we think about the design of schools that really support these, this kind of delivery. So the guiding principles and priorities, and after this slide I'm going to stop and we can discuss this a little bit, um, that were created again. These are the big picture priorities for the project. Some of them are philosophical, some of them relate to educational delivery, some of them have um, speak a little bit about the way space is used, but they all have spatial implications. So purposeful innovation, um, really a, an environment that is adaptable and flexible in terms of space. Um, we're thinking about extending learning beyond the classroom. Uh, and this is something that's very different in terms of the way we think of schools because now if we're fully wired and every inch of the building can be used because it's a, essentially a computer lab, then we don't need to be just inside the classroom. Now we have really young kids here, so we're going to need to think about how do we monitor kids, but how do we give them, how do we use every inch of the, of the school, so maybe we extend some of the hallways out and have some windows from the classrooms that look out into those areas so you can have some more multi-use spaces. Um, so we want to think about extending that learning outdoors as well. Um, and, um, and embedding technology, sort of not as an end in and of itself, but it's there when you need it. And we know it's going to keep evolving. Brain-based learning, and that really implies taking a whole child approach um, and looking at all the different sort of ways in which kids have intelligence. And, and they want that intelligence sort of um, to be able to be expressed and uh, developmentally appropriate um, activities for kids, developing their curiosity and having the, the school feel joyful and playful, like having opportunities for discovery um, and, and having maybe colors or, or public art or things that really excite kids and engage them. Learning communities, and this really relates to uh, whether whichever size of, of, of school option is ultimately decided on. We want to make sure that there are small orbits within the building where kids feel really connected. They feel a sense of connection to a group of adults and to a place. And we can do that within a larger school as well by creating small learning communities and hubs or neighborhood hubs. So we talked a lot about um, and looked at a lot of examples about what the, those neighborhoods um, can look like. This is also about Inclusive learning practices, making sure now special education, the way we used to um, support special education in schools is having special education services at one side of the school and kids were pulled out. Now we use a push-in approach, which means that students don't necessarily leave their classrooms or they might just go to an adjacent room or within the context of their classrooms they're getting uh, they're getting support and enrichment services, so that's a push-in methodology, so um, we want to support that. Sustainability, I had mentioned that before. Um, net zero aspirations, so we want to at least look at what does it look like to create a building where we're producing energy as well as consuming it. Um, looking at the building as a teacher and of course looking at siting of the building and making sure that there's abundant natural light and passive solar orientation.
Five, community connections, so looking at the school as a collaborator and a resource for the community, uh, making the community intergenerational uh, for kids, families, adults, seniors, and also reflecting the town history. We spoke a lot about how do we sort of honor the town history and sort of curate some aspects of that, maybe through graphics, or, or it could be the aesthetics of the building as well. And finally, outdoor connections. So using the natural environment, creating age-appropriate outdoor play and learning spaces, and rooftop gardens were, um, were also something that came up because we saw a bunch of examples of that. Um, another thing that isn't on this list that does belong here is around safe drop-off and pickup. Uh, we talked about that as being very important. So what I want to do now is, uh, before we share some of the, the actual design patterns, um, the architectural features we, we prioritized, I'd like to stop for about five or ten minutes and just have you look at these in your handouts. Um, They're on the second or third page of your handout, the guiding principles. And just see, talk as a group about you know what you notice, what strikes you about these priorities that have been articulated. Is there anything that you feel like is missing that you would like to see added to that priority list? And also, do you have any questions about it um, that you would like to pose to the group and have us uh, try and answer for you? Okay. Yes, sir. If, you, if you're not at a table, you may want to join one. to uh, sort of do a little sharing. Um, anything that this table wants to share here about a piece of your conversation? So we've mentioned, uh, you know, the world is your classroom and, and integrating more play-based and stretching outside the normal boundaries of the classroom, whether it's inside the building and, and hopefully outside. So we talked about we'll see that maybe later as they do the test fits and learn more about this uh, parcel of land and what it can, you know, the opportunity. But I mentioned Maplewood because it's, uh, we put three kids through there and, and what growth we've seen through play-based learning. And I hate to see it just all of a sudden, it's like it stops and you're confined to a classroom in center school. <laughs> So if we could open that back up and use all the spaces that uh, David had mentioned, school becomes uh, much more interactive. Place. Thank you. How about from this table? Any any volunteer to share? I know uh, one of the things that came up in your conversation. I see a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that we can think of that really should be addressed. 
is on here for consideration. So it's it's a good strong list to start with. Okay, and that's great. To, that we can all. Agree that's with. great feedback for us yeah. to to just know that there wasn't any something glaringly missing or anything from that. All right, so I'm going to very quickly uh, take us through some of the um, design patterns. Um, and I actually have a handout of these that I can give out at the end so people can take them along if you like. But um, so, so one of the things that, um, that uh, we do as part of the visioning process is to look at a lot of examples of ways that spaces in schools can be used. And part of this is to very quickly get people on the same page about what it is they're excited about and what it is that they're not excited about, right? Because some of the design patterns may be things that people really are, no, that's not us, that's not the way we do things. Um, and it's also to push people's thinking forward about ways of thinking about school design that might be different than just a nicer version of a traditional school that we know about. Because we are, again, really thinking about trying to design schools in a way where they can be used as we use them now, but. 20 years from now, they will be able to have been adapted into some different kind of ways of, of being used. So I'm just going to quickly um, go through what some of those are. So security and welcome. So we talked about both of those being connected. This is the Zervis School in Newton. There's a double lock entry here. Here's the administration, so you can easily see people approaching the building. When you come into this space, it feels like a very friendly space. There's space to meet. You can look into the cafetorium over here. There's also a, a nice flat screen monitor where pictures of kids doing things. So you really get a sense of what the school is. It feels, it feels safe, but it also feels really friendly. Classroom neighborhoods. This is also at the service. So here's an example of we've got four classrooms here in a grade level. And then what would have been just the hallway out here is now kind of like a cul-de-sac and it's furnished. So this space here is what you see in this picture. So we've got flexible furniture and big door windows that look into the classrooms. So that the, this is really an extension of the classroom and where you can do more active kind of learning. Also have kids take a break and, and move out of their classroom into a new environment or maybe combine two classrooms together if you're doing some kind of group project. It's no more square footage. And then here's a small meeting room, another small meeting room, and a pullout room or an office. So you have sort of this whole cluster of spaces that create a neighborhood where kids can feel really well known and where there's a lot of synergy between the spaces. The idea of extended learning spaces. Here's another example. This is a school, the Martin Luther King School in Cambridge, where every five classrooms has one of these spaces outside. So what we just saw. So it's, again, it's an extended hallway area. In this case, um, in this picture here, this is a school in Australia. Here's a third grade classroom. It's got a big sliding door that opens out into this extended space with fun, flexible furniture and then an outdoor play area right outside. Community access. So this is the idea that you have kind of a more public zone 
and then these more private neighborhoods. But the public zone is accessible by the community. So you can actually lock off certain areas. You can lock off this whole academic area um, and leave this more for after school or on weekends uh, as a resource for the community. So you've got your, uh, your cafeteria with a stage here and gymnasium, and that's all accessible in the media lab on the second floor as well. Maker spaces and fabrication labs. We're really thinking about how do we build in some of this hands-on activity stuff for kids. So, um, so that's part of the conversation. Flexible learning. The idea of more, you know, how to having furniture that you can arrange in different ways. Maybe chair. These chairs can be stacked. You can move these tables out of the way and really clear things out. Here's a garage door that opens directly out into a hallway area where you can do some messy work. The idea of inclusive learning practices, these are just bubbles, that's what we call it. These are not round rooms. These are just sort of diagrams of relationships between rooms. So here's a special ed classroom and a resource room, but it's right next to a whole group of classrooms, so it's not separate. Another thing that you see here is uh, what we call a branch library. We're taking some of the media lab square footage and, and, and dispersing it with some of the, in some of those neighborhoods so you can have a uh, sort of a reading room or a book room there. You see some small breakout rooms here as well. Branding and identity is around using color and materials to create different zones within the school. And that has to do with kids feeling a sense of place and ownership. So not every place looks the same, um, but they can really feel a sense of connection. Uh, sustainability, we talked about in terms of sustainable materials and practices. And then here's an example from the Martin Luther King School, again, a K-5 in Cambridge, where you can actually look inside the walls and see what's happening. Or when you go to the mechanical room, it shows you it, it explains to you what each of those uh, each of those machines are uh, that you see, the, all the HVAC system. Indoor-outdoor connections, making sure we have some direct connections, say from the cafetorium, um, having sort of varied and age-appropriate play spaces outside. Engaged outdoor play, directly accessible. The idea of display and exhibition, really celebrating student work throughout the school and being able to sort of um, showcase uh, the things that you're excited about. Quiet spaces within the school, we want to have collaborative spaces, but we also, also want to make sure that there are nooks and places where kids can feel like they can get quiet or perhaps de-escalate. And here's some learning nooks in the library at the Zervis School. Here's at the MLK School. Built into every classroom is actually a little nook. Um, there's storage below and above, and then it gives kids a place to get quiet. Hallway learning, that's kind of literally using the hallways, putting some furniture out there. We've got to make sure that fire egress codes are clear and we know where people are exiting. But um, a lot of times in our schools, we have stuff going on in the hallways anyway, so we want to make it as flexible and uh, comfortable as possible. And breakout and collaborative spaces. Here's a school which has a little amphitheater right outside the classrooms, or a multi-purpose room where you can have grade level or, 
or whole school meetings. And then history and storytelling using graphics uh, and, and sort of display to sort of um, get across the history of the town or what the, what the school values. So those are a bunch of the, the um, design patterns that we prioritized. For anybody that is interested, I have a handout with all of those on it, so you can take it with you. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Ashley now, because I know she has a bunch to share with us. Hi, my name is Ashley Inacelli. Um I'm a principal at Traverse Landscape Architects, and I'm working with Perkins Eastman on the site planning. So as part of this feasibility study um, and looking at the visioning and educational program, we also start to look at the different sites that are available to us and how we can fit that program onto the sites and how um, potentially a new school could look on those and which sites are more feasible for uh, this work. So we start to look at environmental constraints as well as build conditions, but we also start to create targets based on circulation needs of the schools. So some of the most important pieces are buses, for instance. How many buses do we have coming into each school every day, and how many do we need to accommodate on that new site? Uh, you can see some of the targets we're looking at now are Center School 6, Parkview 5, and Murrow 5. And just to give you some background on this list, this is a working document. Uh, we do have Ty and Bond doing traffic studies right now and looking at some of the actual numbers for circulation. This is based on a survey they did, but we think it gives us a good baseline to start with. Another really large piece is parking as well as parent drop-off and how that works. So currently for car parking you see two numbers here. You see the existing conditions on all schools and then to the right of that you see uh, parking needs based on the actual zoning requirements, which is just slightly less. Underneath that we also start to look at drop-offs and pickups. You'll notice that drop-offs are not as critical because of the way the pattern works. Parents drop their kids off and then they move along. Um, it's really the PM pickups that start to become an issue, and that's where you see the congestions on the roads and all the stacking spaces that are required. And we try to keep that in mind as we start looking at some of these sites. Another thing we'll look at is pre-K drop-off. And usually uh, start times of that school are staggered so we can double up either a bus drop-off or um, a parent drop-off. So today we're looking at two different sites. Um, and the first test fit is the ad reno for um, the 235 school, and this is on center site. And what you can see here is we have a couple different um, existing conditions that make it prohibitive to build and start to um, push where we can locate that building. So first of all, we have a wetland here located in the south corner, and with that comes a 50-foot no-disturbed buffer as well as a 100-foot buffer. On top of that, we also have this pond located up here in the front. Now, accordingly, this pond is actually man-made, so we don't have an associated buffer with it. So there could be potential opportunity to locate a school on that, that area. However, we think the pond's an opportunity, so for the purpose of the studies, we've kept the new school located on it. Um, so we also have our existing site here, our existing school. So what we've done is created the ad renovation, which builds onto that existing school. And we've started to look at locating the different targets we have. So we know we need parking. We can locate that up front here. And we also look at, can we put a car queue in here? How many cars can that accommodate? So we do see we're meeting our parking needs. We're meeting our bus queue. And then we've also looked at bringing our bus in separate 
potentially off of School Street and keeping that circulation between cars and buses completely separate. We, this is something we do generally on all our projects or try to do, and we think it's a much safer way than having the two um, congested during the a.m. and pickup times, which we know can be very busy. Another thing that you can start to look at on these sites are the numbers of existing play, open green stays, structured play, and hardscape play. I don't think it's really important to get into the nitty-gritty of those numbers, but you're going to start to see different trends on the different sites. And especially when we see priorities like connections to green space or the world is your classroom, we know that we really value those open spaces and some of these sites are going to give you more of that than others. This is center site, all new for the smaller school. So here we are maintaining the existing school in place. And that really drives the positioning of that new building because what you can see is we have this very small corner here to locate that school. It's tucked in between the existing school and that wetland buffer. But that does offer up nice green space opportunities here. The existing site does have a softball field and unfortunately in both of these scenarios that softball field does get lost. But we do have opportunities for new green space, new fields. You can see we have a nice big um, parking area here to the side. We can get a a bus queue and parent drop off in the front and again taking the bus queue in the back. So this does work, it does meet our program requirements. Um, and then actually the open green space is a little bit less than what you saw before, but we do have space there available for you know outdoor classrooms, hardscape play and screen play. This is the test fit on center site for a whole new school for the combined school. And I think what's evident here is that it is not possible to locate the larger school on this site without taking down the existing building first, which could be a challenge. Um, but it's really just based on the geometry of the site and then the fact that the existing school is located pretty much dead in the center. So it just makes it a little bit prohibitive to where we can locate it. You'll also note that we can meet or almost meet our parking needs, we can almost meet our bus queues, but we're really starting to limit ourselves in what we have for available green space and play. So again, I think it all comes down to values and what you value more. Is it parking or is it, you know, green? And some of the sites will do better than this. So this is the existing conditions for the Parkview site. This is the other site we looked at. So here you actually have two existing softball fields, a multi-use field in the center, and then a multi-use field located over here. You have the existing Parkview located a little bit closer to Spooner Street. And then we have also a wetland in the corner, so we have a minor setback there to the west side, but we really feel like that wetland could provide some potential great learning opportunities. Here you can see we have a big existing number for green skates, a large number for hardscape play, and then also structured play, and there's also a very robust student garden on this site. So in this first test fit, we're looking at an ad renovation. Um, we're building off of this existing segment of the building. We are leaving this existing multi-use field here, which is actually doubles as an effluent disposal area, so that's staying in place. We are looking at bringing a car queue in the front, elongating that, and then we're also looking at opportunities for taking a bus queue around the building. Um, with the large combined school, that does mean more buses, so we need to make sure we provide enough staffing for that. So some of the pros of the site, we have a separate car and bus drop-off, that's great. We have a lot of great green space here, though it's not as big as some of the other spaces and may not allow for the re replication of some of those softball fields, which you will see on some of the other test fits. 
Um, and then you also have, you know, you do have the separate, the, the nice green space, but you have a limited car queue, which I think we might be able to work through. I mean, those numbers are still being developed, but I think um, that is losing the softball fields could be uh, one of the deterrents in this. But this site does fit, and we do think it could work. All right, the next test fit is the Parkview site, and this is for a new school. So you see our existing school building located right here. Um, previously, this is the location of the multi-use field and a softball field, and what we've tried to do is locate the new school in that location and then replicate those fields right here in the front of the site. We are also able to keep the softball field in place. We've located our bus queue um, in the front of the school here off of Lothrop Street, and then all, also we have the car queue and car drop-off on the other side. So this might mean we'll have two entrances to the school, which is something I think in most tents fits for this larger school we're looking at. I think some of the um, pros here that we keep the softball field in place, we maintain this really large green space in the front, we can meet our parking and bus queue requirements, and then I think some of the cons that we've been looking at, we've noted, are obviously traffic keeps coming up in all of these test fits, and that was something that would continue to be studied as we move through to make sure we really understand where the best location for bus queues are, and then car queues as well, and make sure that stacking works and doesn't provide more congestion uh, than you have today. Are there any questions? These are, again, feasibility studies. We don't think these are the answers. These are really just making sure what we're showing, that these program requirements can fit on the site. Um, and as we move through, we'll start to refine these and, you know, develop them really even further. But if there's any feedback, if anything you've seen here um, you like or don't like, we'd love to hear that and open it up for some comments. Can you go back to center school for a minute? I was going to ask that you come up to the mic so we can get it on the camera. That's okay. <laughs> I just have a quick question. Is the wetlands in the back the tree line, the current tree line? Yes, it does align pretty much with the tree line. The buffers are outside of that. Okay. Um, I can also add, um, Ashley did a great job. There was a slide missing at the front, which was the site analysis for center school, so that would have probably helped clarify some things. Um, in all these cases, um, we did lay out the <coughs> program, we kept in mind some of the things we heard about visioning, but they're not designs. Um, they were all tested, all these plans that you see are tested primarily one story, but um, in the combined school we, we've taken the first and second grade and made that a two-story portion of the building. So it's a reasonable check, we expect that would be the desire, so from these feasibility studies there's many variants and options that could come up. So I think from my perspective, because I've, this is, I've seen this once, this is the second time I'm seeing this, but in my head, I always imagined that the center school site was bigger than it was. I just, I had this vision in my head that there's all this space on center school, and now when you start to see how things might fit on that site, it just... It, it, it really was a surprise to me, seeing it visually like that. And you're actually not wrong. If you look at the acreage, it's actually really similar. They both come out to about 13 acres, but I think once it comes down to is you have the geometry of the sites, and then that wetland on the center street takes up about three plus acres, which makes a, bit, a big difference. Um, the pond, um, do you plan on incorporating that into the school, um, or is it just 
going to be for looks? So why are you keeping it? You know, we would love to incorporate that into the educational program of the school, but I think that's something we'd study uh, moving forward. Again, like Lowe Wetlands, we think that's a great opportunity for outdoor classrooms and play based around that, uh, but that's something we'd look, we'd continue to study. Did you mean incorporate it educationally or maybe use that land? Both. Okay. accommodate that many buses? It's a tiny street, a very uh, quaint neighborhood. That's a good question, yes. And that is something that we would have to study in much greater detail yeah. to see, you know, maybe it's possible for the smaller school, if it's six buses, could it accommodate six? But is if it's 16, could it accommodate 16? And that's something moving forward that would be a big uh, question for us, and we lean on our traffic engineer and create multiple studies to evaluate those. Seems that the Center Street site is there's no growth opportunity, so that you know in 20 years, let's say the population of the town want to put a little wing to it, you're really boxed in the corner here. Yeah, um, I think it comes up often with capacity, and one of the things that the MSBA um, has us do as architects is plan for expansion in a number of ways. We we try to do it internally, knowing that there's some capacity and the ability maybe to put more students in the school. Um, a scenario like this would inevitably say you'd have to go up. So it's, it's not what you would want, but you may have to design the structure so it can handle more second-story space. Um, the alternative would be to you know, clear out more, reserve more landscape, but I, I think we're seeing already, we're, quite frankly, we would call this um, proving not feasible because we don't meet, there's really no play space. I think there, there's an extreme solution here where we could squeeze out more parking, do all rooftop versions of play, and you might technically get there, but I think it's it, it's proving itself not viable. Let's go to the rooftop play. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, in a town like Houston, it just it doesn't make right. sense. It's not a city. No, something we've heard, and I'd love to hear any feedback on, are the softball fields. How valuable are these, you know, are these really important to the community? Are these something you'd like to see replicated? Are, are there any thoughts uh, from this group here? Very well used. They So I do think that is a benefit of this plan, being able to locate this building in this lower quadrant. gives us that flexibility where we could potentially maintain these fields and replicate um, what was displaced. So I think that's a plus, plus for this option. In terms of the traffic study for the, the main campus site or the Parkview site, uh, is it the intention of the traffic engineer to study the Parkview area or the entire campus. I'll jump in if I'm saying anything incorrectly, but we've understood, I think, since the interview that this has to be looked at greater than just the school because as a campus, the circulation is all related. And I think if anyone has driven around, especially with I'm not as familiar, and it is very challenging to find your way. So it's important that the wayfinding is clear and that the circulation makes sense and alleviates that congestion. Yeah, I'll just add that 
the cursory level of, of observation that was done um, was done on both sites and you know it provides again a little bit of a feasibility level eye check on it. It's not until a site is chosen that a very detailed set of um, recommendations and analysis will, will be produced. So I know sometimes in communities there's a desire to have all of that done to, to even make the choice about site, but um, it, it, really the, the funds for a traffic engineer don't go far enough to cover you know, multiple sites. So we're hoping to get a, a good sense of recommendations and, and what seems reasonable through this first set of observations and recommendations, and then from there um, do a whole campus solution if it's chosen. Yes? In this particular test fit, would this new building be able to be built with park view, the current park view in front of it? That so, is, so there wouldn't, they, that, there wouldn't be any displacement? Yes, that is the goal of this uh, study here. So and then phase two, it would come down. Right. right. Sorry. Phase two would have come down. So in this, if this were the test fit, would center school have a possibility, so that would be roused, and then could they become the softball fields and the soccer fields? Yeah, that's, that's up to the town. One of the things that the MSBA will be asking is, um, should you be vacating buildings, what is the intent uh, for reuse? And it could be exactly that. So I think that'll be part of the dialogue. Yeah, they, uh, Walter's pointing out that the MSBA doesn't participate in off-site demolition. So if this was the chosen site for a solution, um, the expense to demolish or raise the building the center school would be on the town as well. And this is one story with built-in per capacity, it would either be larger, it would go to a second floor. Um, this is primarily one story. I think the first and second grade wing is actually a two-story component, but prim prim predominantly it's one story. It was designed um, so that even though it looks like a big box here, that upon your approach it feels like a collection of smaller kind of pavilions, so to speak. Alicia, did you? On, at this level, this feasibility level, is there consideration of any um, sewerage needs or wastewater treatment or anything like that for these two sites? Um, yes, absolutely. It's part of the feasibility assessment. Um, Ashley might be able to speak to a bit of that, but I know some of that information is still coming in. Um, the exact numbers are actually coming in, and we do have our engineers looking at that. Um, you'll notice on the last test fits, we are locating, this would be the center all new school combined, we are locating two new septic areas that would be required for that new school. And then if we were on the Parkview site, we know that we have an existing affluent disposal area here. So we may need to locate more area based on the new capacity requirements. And if that is the case, we have two options. We could potentially expand that area or we could locate we could potentially locate another smaller septic area here. So that is going to come down to the engineers looking at the capacity we have, how much space we need, and then can we add on or can we just develop a small septic to go in conjunction with. And that's because there's currently a wastewater treatment plant already at this site. Is correct. That correct. So that's why you don't see septic on that, that plant at all. Though the engineer has pointed out that if 
we need more capacity, it's potentially an option, you know, to locate a smaller septic here as opposed to expanding what we have. But there's some flexibility there. And you'll notice in these test fits, we are leaving this existing area clear so that we don't have to disturb that. Any other questions? This has been great. I know we started a little Are later. Any other potential sites, or is it? Uh, what's been outlined um, are two sites for study. Um, I think. You took a cursory look, and there is just a ton of restrictions: wetlands, parklands in Easton. We couldn't find any sites when we looked that were going to have the capacity to fit the program. When PMA was first uh, looking at the project, we uh, went on to uh, the Massachusetts GIS map, um, and there are not a lot of sites in Easton that are not wetlands or restricted areas for parklands or forestry. Um, the size of the program required for this building, even for the smaller program, requires, I think, almost a seven and a half, eight acre site just for the smaller program, um, and the larger program even bigger. Um, and I think the landscape architect, Ashley, Bob also found that out when looking at the topography of Easton in general. Um, we're not aware of any other sites at this time. Okay, so um, there may be more questions. Um, we did want to talk a little bit about next steps. So we are here tonight um, for the community forum. We'll have a school planning committee meeting on the 28th. And some of what we're doing now is, is wrapping up the visioning, refining our educational program, which is that pivotal document, as well as the space summary. Um, we're going to start to look in more detail um, at the, um, basically at the planning options. So now we're actually going to look into the plans a little bit, and based on some of the stuff we heard tonight, but also just um, uh, kind of just exercising, you know, more study, we'll look at some variations on these, so we're hoping to start to refine and get in more detail. Um, in December, we'll be looking at um, a final assessment of studies. Again, no decision is being made, but we want to collect some of what we're hearing now, but successfully over the next few meetings. Um, um, another community meeting is sure to be scheduled to get a little bit more input as well. Um, we want to understand from the community's point of view the pros and cons or, or things that um, need to be considered and we hope to put together a bit of an evaluation document so we can see all the options, we can see which ones are feasible, which ones aren't working, which ones um, meet the educational goals better, which ones meet the community goals better, which ones have greater traffic concerns, less concerns, what's the cost of all of them. So many things are going to go into the evaluation, um, but that'll all be getting put together in sort of the final assessment into December, and ultimately we'll submit our report with that assessment to the MSBA on January 15th. Um, from there, we will continue on, and the next phase will be the all-important one where we'll, we'll take a deep breath, but we'll take what we've learned, develop more variants if necessary, but also start to hone in on what is the, the best solution for Easton. Um, and then uh, that's February to May, and then uh, following that, it would be June to September to develop that um, and ultimately get to a fall town meeting. Thank you all for coming. Um, we're still we're sticking around for questions, and if there, I think there might be one bit of, of <coughs> any other wrap up. I, I, I
I'm just, I'm just going to real quickly thank everybody again for coming tonight. Um, and one of the conversations I heard at one of the tables was, how do we um, continue to engage the community around us? How do we build momentum? And, and I will tell you that um, the um, school planning committee is really committed to that. And we would take your suggestions about ways you think we can get to the community. Um, lots of notices went out about all of these meetings, both within the schools and across the community. Um, but if people have better suggestions about how we might go about that, I'm, I'm very willing to listen to those. I'm also very willing to go to any community event that you might be hosting. And um, Walter also made a great suggestion, which is all of our school planning committee meetings are open to the public. So if anybody ever wants to come and sit in on a school planning committee meeting, you are very welcome to do that. Um, Again, I just I want us to be building momentum so that when we get to the point where we're um, in the you know a year from now, people already have the information they need and already feel that they're engaged around this. So that's pretty important from my perspective. Just a reminder that we do have a website just for this project, which has a lot of this information and, and a great deal more, including extensive frequently asked questions. And there's going to be an email on there as well, an email address for people to send in questions or uh, look for more information. So you, that can either be accessed through our district webpage uh, at Easton Public Schools or at Easton EES, which is for Easton um, Early Elementary School, EastonEESProject.com. So we would ask you to please share that information and check it as often as you'd like. Again, on the top right-hand side, there's a list of links. One of them is FAQs. The videos for all of these meetings are on there, um, contact information, and so forth. Thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate your input tonight. And if people haven't signed the sign-in sheet, is that, does every, if everybody's on it, or if, you, if you're not, please do before you leave. And if you, I have a handout, I'll put at the tables if you want, of the design patterns. If you want to take them home and put them on the wall. Thank you.